I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no ominous and gibbous. And the Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week, we're covering The Satyr. The Satyr was the first written but last published Averone story. It might have been the second written. I'm not quite sure. I don't know if we know exactly when it was written. Regardless, it was either the first or the second. And actually, I have this this whole thing. Like, I don't actually know if... In our notes, uh, I have it written out that it was originally, its first publication date was in the Arkham collection, Genius Loci and Other Tales in 1948. But there's a couple of a couple of sources that say that it's actually its first publication might actually have been in 1931 in this magazine called La Paris Stories. La Paris Stories, I, I can find very little about on the internet, except if you look at the covers, it looks like it was kind of not a porno mag, but like, <laughs> like a lad mag. Like it, the, the covers are all sort of saucy. Um, Lascivious? Yeah, like lascivious drawings of women in various states of undress. Um, so it's like a men's magazine. Yeah, like yeah, a men's magazine. And that that citation comes from two places, but I can't find on, online. All I can find are covers of the magazines, and I can't find any actual like bibliography to confirm if it was originally published in 1931. So it was definitely in in Genius Loci and Other Tales, though. Which is why we're doing it last. Yes, exactly. And really, to me, this feels more like a fragment than like some of the stories, which is why I think he didn't publish it in Weird Tales or anything, and why I think it was published later when probably, I don't know, maybe Durleth was saying, hey, I need a story. And Smith said, oh, here, have this one. I have no comment on that. Me neither. <laughs> this story actually has two different endings, the one that was published and an unpublished version, which is in a draft of it that both Phil and I have read. And it's also available on the Eldritch Dark website, so we're going to be linking to that as well with a, I would say, a completely alternate ending. Either way, it's kind of a weird, twisted, odd, violent story. It's a mean little tale. And both endings. I'm still trying to decide which ending is meaner. Same. (laughs) But we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that once we finish up. Raoul, Comte de Lefrenet, was by nature the most unsuspicious of husbands. His lack of suspicion, perhaps, was partly lack of imagination, and, for the rest, was doubtless due to the dulling of his observational faculties by the heavy wines of Averone. At any rate, he had never seen anything amiss in the friendship of his wife, Adèle, with Olivier Dumontois, a young poet who might in time have rivaled Ronsard as one of the most brilliant luminaries of the Pleiad, if it had not been for an unforeseen but fatal circumstance. Now, this actually sets one up for the ending that wasn't published. Yeah, it's true, yeah. Although, um, I guess 
regardless of the ending, maybe um, it was enough for uh, Olivier to Stop quit writing. the poetic arts. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, that that does kind of reference the alternate ending. So there are two little references in that reading that I made notes on. One, who was Ronsard, uh, and he was apparently the quote-unquote prince of poets. He, he was French, like getting from the French Renaissance, basically. Uh, his dates are 1525 to 1585. I'd never heard of him before this, and the Pleiade was the name given to a bunch of 16th century French Renaissance poets. Ronsard. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Um, and the Pleiade, like it's apparently there was a Pleiade in the classical era, like um, Greek or Roman times, and it's named after the constellation. The Pleiades. Yeah. But uh, again, like I don't, I don't know anything other than, than those little bits, but I'm sure the internet and various other scholars know way more about Ronsard and uh, the Pleiade than, than I do, so. And I know that Smith was very into French poetry, more later stuff like Baudelaire, but it's not surprising that he would have known all of this. We know that our hero or our sensible hero is this kind of, like, he's a bit of a dullard and a drunk. And he, like, we learn a little bit later in the story that he doesn't really get poetry, but he likes it that this poet likes his wife because he writes pretty things about her. He thinks that's cool. And once again, it doesn't raise any red flags for him, which is kind of... I mean, I guess it's good not to be jealous, but he also doesn't seem like the most, the sharpest tack in the box. He cuts a pretty funny character, like this kind of drunk lord who's just like, yeah, oh, it's great. Be friends with my wife. Write her poetry. Ah, oh, ha, ha, ha. Have a drink. Write about how hot she is. And she's, you know, she's hot. That's awesome. <laughs> Yay. It's interesting that this is, um, I think in every, maybe not every feature story, but at least in Gargoyles, and I think in, in another one too, Lafreniere is talked about as the place where alcohol comes from. Um, mm-hmm. and yes, that's not uh-huh. referenced here, but it is referenced that that Raoul like drinks. drinks a lot of like yeah. heavy wines. It's fun to try to like trace that. When was it that Smith decided that Frenet is where the alcohol comes from? Like, was it in the course of writing the story, or was it after writing the story? Or so now Olivier, his poems about Adele start getting a little bit more intimate, or just a little more bold, and he's visiting Lafreniere more and more. And Raoul, something isn't sitting well with him. Although I think like one of the interesting things about this part of the story is that while he is growing more bold and while um, in both the poetry and the visitations, the, the narrator of the story goes out of his way to say that not only did Raoul not suspect anything, but there didn't seem to be any gossip about them either, which just seems odd. Mm-hmm. Like there's that weird line about like, and nobody else thought much of it either. Well, we do know that they're not sleeping together. Right, but we don't find that out till later. Like that, that That's true. becomes explicit later in the story. So yeah, I mean, it just it seems to be like occurs in a number of Averone stories a case of a heated but not yet uh, consummated passion between the poet and, and the wife. I loved how he mentioned that it seemed like his wife was growing younger mm-hmm. with this with this attention, and I think that's a great little portrait of her. How she's maybe been ignored by this mm-hmm. Raoul. And now there's this man, this poet, who's paying attention to her. So she seems a little more lively and younger. And maybe she's she's dressing up more for him. And it's spring. And so everything's a little more beautiful and she's happier. And, and it's, it, this is an interesting paragraph, too. Like both those observations come from the same paragraph where for some reason that the narrator refuses to name specifically. So he just sort of tosses these options out like Raoul suddenly does become suspicious And it's either because suddenly he notices his wife is younger or because it is like a very sudden verdant spring. So maybe 
it has awakened certain emotions in him. I, I can't remember exactly how it's phrased, but I, like what I find interesting about it is other stories, like he's not, not other stories that Smith has written, but just other stories generally, like he, the narrator is unwilling to say specifically what did it. Like he's, he's sort of, he, he sketches out what may have done it, but doesn't actually say, well, Raul came home one day and saw that his wife was beautiful and suddenly realized, like, he just sort of says, at some point, this thing happened, I don't exactly know why. And I, which gives the story kind of like that, that same sense that a lot of Averroes stories have, that, that there is actually some unnamed narrator. But whatever the case, he, like, he does become jealous, uh, and he comes home one day and finds that she has gone out into the woods with the poet. And so he asks the servants, you know, where did they go? And he gets told that they went, you know, out deep into the woods and he sets out after them. And like, there's this funny line about him fingering the hilt of his rapier as he goes. Yeah. Which is, just makes me laugh because I'm a juvenile that way. <laughs> then he quickened his pace and he began to finger the hilt of his rapier as he went on through the thickening woods. Exactly. I am afraid, Olivier. Shall we go any further? Adele and Olivier had wandered beyond the limits of their customary stroll, and were nearing a portion of the forest of Averone where the trees were older and taller than all others. Few people ever passed beneath these trees, and queer beliefs and legends concerning them had been prevalent among the local peasantry for ages. Things had been seen within these precincts, whose very existence was an affront to science and a blasphemy to religion and evil influences were said to attend those who dared to intrude upon the sullen umbrage of the immemorial glades and thickets. The beliefs varied, and the legends were far from explicit, but all agreed that the wood was haunted by some entity inimical to man, some primordial spirit of ill that was ancienter than Christ or Satan. Panic, madness, and demonic possession, or baleful, unreasoning passions that led them to doom, were the lot of all who had trodden the domains of this entity. There were those who whispered what the spirit was, who told incredible tales regarding its true nature, and described its true aspect, but such tales were not meet for the ear of devout Christians. So again, I love it when in Averone, Clark Ashton Smith, or the unnamed narrator, says there's something out there, it's not... It's not God, and it's not Satan. It's something old, and I could probably tell you a little bit more about it, but I'm not going to because it's not fit for your gentle ears. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it's it's great. It yeah. has such a great, like you were saying before, very folktale-ish uh, storytelling aspect to it. And it, it's cool. Like I um, I like it when stories, and it's like it's kind of a hallmark of weird fiction in general when they resist the urge to um, explicitly classify. And I mean, this story does by the virtue of its title, kind of explicitly classify, but I like it that it kind of pushes against that classification here and says that, you know, there are, no one could say exactly, but it was inimical to both science and religion, and it just sort of, it, it gives the whole area a really thick sense of, of mystery and uh, dread, I guess. Dread mixed with beauty, though, because at this point, yeah. the woods hasn't gotten really eerie. It's just old. It's very old here. And that's why uh, Olivier persuades her, even though she's a bit nervous, to keep going, because there's nothing out there that's going to harm them, he thinks, just beauty to enchant them. <laughs> yeah, and then that's, I think, is that an exact quote that he says? There's much beauty to enchant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, for the time, like, she agrees and they go deeper, and, and for the time being, 
he seems to be right. Like there are some really great passages of how beautiful the forest is. And it like, it is this sudden spring. So everything's really blooming and blossoming. The feet of animals, if not of men, had continued the path they were following and had made an easy way into the woods of fabulous evil. The drooping boughs enfolded them with arms of soft verdure and seemed to draw them in, and shafts of yellow sunshine rifted the high trees to aureole the lovely secret lilies that bloomed about the darkly writhing coils of enormous roots. The trees were twisted and knotted, were heavy with centurial incrustations of bark, were humped and misshapen with the growth of unremembered years. There was an air of antique wisdom about them, together with a tranquil friendliness. I, like in this, like there's a lot of passages, but this is, feels very much like Clark Ashton Smith, the poet, hanging out and camping in the middle of the story to just like <laughs> use some language. Yeah. Um, and I don't, like, I still, I, I brought this up, I can't remember which episode, I still find it strange when the word evil gets dropped into these stories, because it doesn't seem to me that we encounter, aside from the fair and occasional other things in Averone, things that are, like, you could say objectively that is evil, especially just in the natural landscape. So it, I, I, don't, I still don't, it still vexes me, the use of the word, and I don't really know what to make of it, especially because... Because here he's sort of describing something that is gorgeous and and beautiful, and he said like it's a it's a an area that predates you know Satan and Christ and all these kinds of things. So evil just feels like a strange value mm-hmm. judgment to to drop in it. Um, Do you think he's trying to kind of engage our prejudice to kind of set us up just by dropping the word evil, and then later on as he's talking more about the woods, he's using these kind of negative but descriptive words like shameful fungi and foul bowls or something like that is he trying to set us up to give us an eerie feeling like we're supposed to even though we're getting description that this is a beautiful place and they're clearly enchanted by it there's still something eerie about it Mm -hmm. it makes me think a bit of a forest in sweden that i walked through that was old and beautiful and had these amazing rock formations that just looked like a troll or something should come out of them a little Pond, like almost like things like they looked almost boggy like like a, a king of some sort of underworld should just come up and grab you and bring right. you down into them and so at the same time it was gorgeous but a little eerie i guess i would use eerie not evil yeah i mean i think that's what's weird about it is that, like evil is a it's a moral descriptor not a mood descriptor and i don't know like to your question tim i don't i don't i don't know i would think that he is because it is a it is a moral judgment evil you know but these trees and this landscape isn't doing anything evil it's just existing Mm -hmm. so i don't know maybe he's taking poetic license with the word evil yeah i mean i can't can't remember i I feel like there's a little bit more indication into into how and why it was being used in the the other story that we talked about and i can't remember the exact context um but i just i I pointed it out here because it again feels a little bit out of place to me um and I, I mean, no doubt purposeful, but I just can't, I can't quite suss out what I think the purpose of it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. And it's, it'll be interesting to see as it, as we head more into his other stories, his other settings to see if he keeps doing the same thing or if this is an Averonian thing. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's a question that I don't, like, hopefully at some point we can find some kind of answer to, but like, I I think, and I guess we'll talk about more about this in the next episode, maybe 
I still find his like who he was as a thinker, like either philosophical or, or political or whatever, uh, a little bit mysterious. Like just from like an authorial standpoint, I don't necessarily know that I would know what Clark Ashton Smith, the writer, viewed to be evil, um, and if he is referencing that here as himself as the writer, or if there is some kind of imagined narr- narrator personality who thinks these woods are evil, or, or what. Good point. But I think that that is an excellent point. So they they get deeper into the woods, and they do encounter a spot which might be termed evil, um, because it's a grotto, and in it they smell something. It seems to be some sort of aphrodisiac, not just an aphrodisiac. It like makes them a little bit love drunk. They don't know what the plant, what plant is making the scent. They keep going. They don't even look at each other. They just keep going forward on this not really path because they've passed the part that the humans walk on and passed on to sort of an animal path. They miss that the woods actually are becoming evil or scary. Yeah, like scary. Like I don't, I don't think evil comes up again. But he does these, hear these strange things that Tim was talking about, like shameful fungi, venerous flowers, and gray bowls. Like suddenly the land around them, the features of the land around them are given, like they're almost personified. Like fungi can't be yeah. shameful, and flowers can't be venerous. I mean, bowls can be gray, but <laughs> but still, like there's something. Underneath the beauty they had observed, there is something strange and uncomfortable going on in the land that they, they don't see because they're too busy, like, caught up in their emotions. And this is something Smith does a lot, where he'll personify the kind of ancient and natural stuff. Maybe it's humanity is terrified of the natural because we're so separated from it. Like, mm-hmm. this is nature at its most wild, and it's freaking them out. <laughs> Uh, and, and there's this also like the scent changes, like they talk about how the, the scent that had um, sort of made them lusty underneath it. There's this, I think they describe it as like the scent of stagnant water that almost breaks the spell. So they're almost no longer thinking about how, you know, they have these feelings for each other, but, but they notice that something strange is going on. And so they reach this pool of water. There, between the nether boughs of the alders and a frame of new leaves, they saw the face that leered upon them. The apparition was incredible, and for the space of a long breath, they could not believe they had really seen it. There were two horns and a matted mass of coarse, animal-like hair above the semi-human face with its obliquely slitted eyes and fang-revealing mouth, and a beard of wild boar bristles. The face was old, incomputably old, and its lines and wrinkles were those of unreckoned years of lust and its look was filled with the slow, unceasing increment of all the malignity and corruption and cruelty of elder ages. It was the face of Pan, as he glared from his secret wood upon travelers taken unaware. Adele and Olivier were seized by a nightmare terror, as they recalled the old legends. The charm of their passionate obsession was broken, and the drug of desire relinquished its hold on their senses. Like people awakened from a heavy sleep, they saw the face, and heard through the tumult of their blood the cachinnation of wild and evil and panic laughter as the apparition vanished among the boughs. Shuddering, Adele flung herself for the first time into the arms of her lover. So that's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. It's like the Venus, but male and uh, alive. Yeah, and just terrifying just completely horrific seeing this ancient lustful thing staring at you as you're like on a 
on a field trip to Bone. <laughs> a field trip to, <laughs> to Bone Village. Wow. Yeah. That's worse than going to Plowtown. Yeah. Anyway, Tim, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So then uh, Adele, f- well, they're both terrified, but as soon as they kind of make contact with one another again, they they remember why they're there. Isn't there in a, a term in on the MR James podcast? And they talk about this moment in MR James stories where they finally like see the image of the thing that has been haunting them. What do they call that? Because this strikes me as like a, a moment that is particularly. Uh, and I don't know the MR James stuff that well, but it feels MR Jamesy to me. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's certainly a make or break moment in the story, and I can't remember offhand what they call it. But yes, they do talk about that over there. Yeah, as well because there there are these moments of and reveal. So yeah, this is a great a great monster reveal. Following the monster reveal, it's like, and that was terrifying. Oh hey, you're kind of hot. They just they fall into each other's arms, and Olivier is kind of like score. But more than that, he's like, I should thank that satyr for what he just did, yeah. which is hilarious. He could even thank the apparition, whatever it was, because it had thrown Adele into his embrace. Oh, Olivier, if only, yeah. if only you knew one of the two ways the story would end. Yeah. Uh, so then they both they start making out, and then they both forget about this horrible laughing thing in the woods. But that's okay. There's double sorcery abroad. So at this point, the story, there's the published version of the ending, and then there's the ultimate right. version of the ending. I have them both in our notes, if we want to read them both. They were lying on a patch of golden moss, where the sun rays fell through a single cleft in the high foliage when Raoul found them. They did not see or hear him as he paused and stood with drawn rapier before the vision of their unlawful happiness. He was about to fling himself upon them and impale the two with a single thrust where they lay, when an unlooked-for and scarce conceivable thing occurred. With swiftness, veritably supernatural, a brown, hairy creature, a being that was not wholly man, not wholly animal, but some hellish mixture of both, sprang from amid the alder branches and snatched Adele from Olivier's embrace. Olivier and Raoul saw it only in one fleeting glimpse, and neither could have described it clearly afterward. But the face was that which had leered upon the lovers from the foliage, and the shaggy legs and body were those of a creature of antique legend. It disappeared as incredibly as it had come, bearing the woman in its arms, and her shrieks of terror were surmounted by the pealing of its mad, diabolical laughter. The shrieks and laughter died away at some distant remove in the green silence of the forest, and were not followed by any other sound. Raoul and Olivier could only stare at each other in complete stupefaction. And there's the crazy laughter. Yeah. <laughs> and it is it is the LOL what ending. <laughs> like, and then a sadder. And, and then, a, and yeah. then they're just like, they're there and he's there and he's got his sword out and he's ready. And, and he's then, like, I want to beat their butts. And then, and then boom, sadder. Like, just. Lol, nope. I feel like the sadder is like, yoink. <laughs> it's so confusing. And they're just standing there. Sorry, this ending makes me laugh every time. When yeah, I first read it, I was like, what? I like it for its what factor, though. I like it because it's <laughs> not. And they're, they're both kind of this way, actually. It, like, it refuses to make sense. Which right. I like, Absolutely. Like, if this story were written in the 50s, or if it was, like, again, a Tales from the Crypt story or something, it would be a little bit more like the second ending. But there would be a punchline. Like, there really yeah. is. Yep. There's no way to make a kind of logical sense of this ending. 
and I love it for that. Like it's totally, I mean, not totally out of the blue because I just saw this thing, but it is sort of like, what the hell? And I it's love inscrutable. It, it, and I love that it is like even to the characters, they just like stare at each other and are like, uh. <laughs> 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 and that's how it ends. Just boom. Yep, complete stupefaction. Yeah. They were lying coupled on a bed of golden moss where the sun rays fell through a cleft in the high foliage when Raoul found them. They did not see or hear him, and their first intimation of his coming, as well as their last, was the rapier which he drove through Olivier's body till it pierced the bosom of Adele. Adele screamed and twisted the corpse of Olivier in limp unison with her twisting. Raoul drew the rapier out and made sure of the woman with a second thrust. Then, with a vague feeling that he had avenged his fashion and a sense of dull, unhappy confusion, of muddled and bleary wonder as to what it was all about, he stood looking down at his victim. They were both very quiet now, as beseems a couple who have been slain in open adultery. And there was no movement, no sign of life in the lonely forest where so few people ever came. Therefore, Monsieur le Comte was startled beyond all measure when he heard the wild, malign, unhuman, and diabolical cachinnation which issued from the alder boughs. He raised his bloody rapier and peered at the boughs, but could see nothing. The laughter ceased and was not followed by any other sound. He crossed himself and began hurriedly to retrace the path by which he had entered the wood. Wow. I, I like. I think the thing I like most about that version is that after he kills them, he's kind of confused. Yeah. Uh huh. I, I like that too. He's but he must have been under the same, the same influences. Yeah, it seems kind of like it doesn't seem passionate. Like he just kind of does it, pushes his rapier in. He's not acting out of rage. No, it doesn't. Like he's definitely was suspicious, and he was fingering the rapier, so he was clearly thinking about some sort of uh, avenging his wife's honor or whatevering he, whatever his mental process was when he was going into the forest. Yeah, it's just like and simple thrust to the pair of them, which is referenced uh, in the in the first version. But the the fact that he does it and then the satyr laughs that just I don't I don't know what the satyr's up to in either story. I know for the second one, it seems like maybe the satyr had was kind of influencing them all. Mm-hmm. Into... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the way to read the second ending is that the, the satyr was heightening their sinful emotions or something. So he conned them into having sex, and then he made Raoul vengeful enough that he would kill them, I think is how we're meant to take that, because then he's like, ha, 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 got you. Right, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, and I like, it, I like this ending a lot, I think, because of two things. Like, it is, one, because it's, the brutality of it is really shocking. That he would like drive his rapier all the way through one and then into the other is really yeah. like it's it's kind of like the most intimately violent thing. I think it's even more so than the Mandrakes that we've Absolutely. seen in any, yep. any Clark Ashton Smith story. And I also I, I love and the first one kind of does this too, but I love him like alone and confused with his bloody rapier in the forest yeah. and like making this what I can only describe as like a relatively hollow gesture when he crosses himself and then is like I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I, don't, I don't know which I like better. I love, I love how confusing the first. I love, as Tim said, that the first one is totally inscrutable, um, and the second one I think you can understand 
what the satyr was after in a certain way. You don't really know why, but it's interesting. I love that the first one leaves you with the picture of the two of them having to walk back together. I know, yeah. <laughs> and just, you just imagine them walking back in the most awkward silence ever. So, um, like, have you tried the new vintage? A couple, a couple <laughs> minutes before I was, you know, banging your wife, like, I saw this thing. Probably the same thing that took her, I guess, now thinking back on it. <laughs> like, do you mind if I stop to take a pee? Because it's a long walk back. It's <laughs> just going to take a long time. I do imagine that the, the second, well, I imagine for both of them, really, Raul gets really, really, really wasted afterward. And if, if Olivier lives, I, I could see why this would stop him from being a poet. So which, uh, which ending, if you guys had to choose, which would you choose? Like, if you had to. If the ghost of Clark Ashton Smith appears at the foot of your bed. I've been thinking about this. I need for... you to choose an ending. I would choose the one, the abduction ending for the sheer lol what? Of yeah. It. Uh-huh. What about you, Philip? Yeah, I'm in, I guess I'm inclined to agree. It's just, it, 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 uh, it makes the story, despite the violence of the second story, the first one makes the story a little bit more uh, memorable because it is just so weird. Yeah, I like it, but I, I think I'd choose the second one, but mainly because... And Ruth, you and I were talking about this before we were recording, but in the first one, only the woman gets punished for Mm -hmm. this. In the second one, you know, both of the adulterers get punished. And even Raul gets punished in a way, you know, having been driven to kill them. I like punishment for both sexes. That's my platform. (laughs) Equality of punishment for adultery. Exactly. Try running uh, with that. I'd like to see how it goes. How would you, how would you guys put this um, story in relation to the story that he either wrote just before, or just after, and ever own um, uh, end of the story? Like, do you think um, in his initial concept of Averon, the satyr was a bigger figure, or like in some sense the source of what is haunting Averon, um, because he's a central figure in, in both in both stories. I definitely like the idea of it being the same satyr. And if if we were taking them together as a weird introduction to Averone, I think it's a, he's an excellent example of how Averone is this modern place that's still tied in. And he's like that. He's like the tie between the two. He's the guy who approaches, Absolutely. even though it was yeah. uh, that one at the time where he approached was in the 1300s. The the guy in the 1700s, you know, came went of his own accord, but He's the tie-in between the old and the new. And even the fact that it's a satyr, that it's half man, half beast, mm-hmm. not a werewolf that can shift back and forth, but it's this this thing that is both, is it is also part of the old world and also part of, like, humanity. It's almost like humanity, the satyr is, like, the spirit, the true nature of humanity, like, what, what we should be, this is what we should be doing. But we're fooling ourselves into this. Or this is what we are. Cathedral cities, right? Yeah, exactly. If there were no rules, we would be satyrs and just acting on our base animal instincts. I'm thinking about that statement, and I don't know what to say about it. It always, with the exception of this story, well, I guess not always because it's only ever been in the other one. The satyr led, who is it, Christoph? Yeah. Into um, oh, well, no, not no, Christoph, not Christoph. The, unnamed, um, the unnamed knight or whatever. Oh, no, I think right. he was. He was named, but he he was oh, a he count was. of something. But it led him, and then later on, the story led Kristoff into this whole new world where 
you know, the monks viewed it as evil in End of the Story. Like in Enchantress of Slayer, it's not really that evil. It's just different. It just works on different rules. Yeah, I mean, I, like, that's why I think that like, I, I'll be curious when we get into the other settings um, what we can discern if they're as concerned with these questions of uh, civilization versus it's not even civilization versus the wilderness. It's like civilization versus like pre-civilized past. Yeah, um, like antiquity versus modernity. Just, like, I think what confuses me about the word evil when he uses it in terms and I think it's, it's a related question when he uses it in terms of uh, describing the the woods is that he doesn't seem across the Averone stories. Um, civilization and Christianity is not presented as good, and nor is it ever, mm-hmm. nor is it ever described as the opposite of these evil woods. Like they're they're intermingled in a lot of ways. So I I just get confused because the um because I guess he's not like evil is a word to me that that um, comes from a story that has a binary. There is good and there is evil. And in the mm-hmm. Everone stories, that that binary is not—it's not—it's not expressed through the narratives. So it's confusing to me that it gets used, just tossed around as a descriptor. You know, like it's not like good monks versus the evil woods ever, Mm-mm. and it's not like it's like complicated monks versus the complicated mysterious woods. So I, I just just get confused. yeah, no, it's a it's a really good point, and you mentioned it before. Is it just a narrative trick that Smith is using? where he's creating this, like the narrator is a character in the story who has thoughts and feelings and a point of view. And maybe that's where that's coming from. The narrator saying it's evil, but Smith is writing the story and he obviously doesn't think it's evil. It's just a different, older way of life, but still perfectly valid. Mm -hmm. Complicated questions here on our last story from Avro. (laughs) And we're going to be talking a bit about Averone on our next episode, which is our wrap-up and sort of our farewell to Averone. Although we'll have one more episode, we hope, um, where we yeah, do a little hopefully. bit of Averonian exploration. Yeah, should be fun. Um, I guess we should mention in the next podcast, we'll be talking about the Averone fragments that are on Eldritch Dark. So if you want to read uh, what we're going to be talking about. Um, I'll put them up in the show notes. And then also an essay by... Um, James Blish, that's like a critique of Clark Ashton Smith. Whether we agree with the negative critique or not, what he says right. about Clark Ashton Smith's influences is true. So right. it's, okay. I think it's worth talking about. All right. Don't go into the evil wood. I think, Ruth, you should do the stabby stab ending. That sounds good. Okay. Okay. So so you do the lusty lust ending. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're both pretty lusty, I have to say. They they are. The stabby ending might even be more lusty than the um, the other one. There is more impaling. There is, yeah. There's a lot of penetration. It's double sorcery, double penetration here uh, in the (laughs) setting. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Okay.